0: I don't know if you got that a few moments ago, but I think we just discovered a great name for a youth group or a heavy metal band that's Christian, of course, Mutilators of the Flesh, right? That's in verse 2. And you think, wow, this is going to get Old Testament exciting until you realize, like I realized, that verse 3 puts Mutilators of the Flesh into context And we're talking about circumcision. We thought we could escape it, being in the New Testament, away from the Old Testament, away from the Old Covenant, and yet it's still being covered here. And in the words of Jolene Carter, how do you talk about something like this except just by talking about it? And we'll get there in just a moment. But in verse 1, we had this miniature message, this sermonette that I just have to share. And I'm going to read verse 1 again. It says, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me, Paul, to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. So maybe you're about to tune out or jump into a class. I hope not. But if that's true, the mini-message is this, that we need to rehearse and remember the joy that we have in the Lord. Why? Because Paul says it will be a safeguard for us. And so, so many of us want to know that new thing, that secret thing, that next level thing. But what Paul's instructing the church at Philippi and is also instructing our Jesus community that's here in D.C. and spread out throughout the whole country is this, that rejoicing in the Lord, remembering, reapplying, rehearsing the truths that we've known— not just seeking for new things, but putting into practice, walking in obedience to what we've already learned, actually works as a safeguard for us, actually works as a defense for us. And I just had to share that miniature message, but don't worry, we're circling right back to circumcision. Let me read verses 2 and 3 and give us a full picture of why this This kind of local concern leads to a global principle. Why it actually matters to you while you're studying um, at home, maybe you're off campus here in D.C., and you're wondering, why are we talking about circumcision and Paul and these guys that lived thousands of years ago? It's going to become very practical very quickly. Verse 2, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh verse 3, for it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh. Here's what's going on here. There was a group of people that lived adjacent or maybe even some had infiltrated this Jesus community at Philippi. and, And they're wanting Gentiles, adults, men to now be circumcised so that they could live into the way of God, but retaining some of that Old Testament, Old Covenant holiness or identity. And, and I love Paul's strong language here. It's not that he hasn't had his coffee or even that he's in prison, but he's calling these people dogs. He's calling them mutilators of the flesh. Why? Because Jesus has completely transformed the understanding of God through his arrival through his life, through his death, and through his resurrection. What used to be considered peak holiness or of peak significance or importance is not anymore. And people are having a hard time grappling with that in and around Philippi. And then we get to the real kind of crux of the issue and what Jesus is trying to correct, what Jesus is trying to bring life to as people are stuck applying old principles in old ways. He's saying, we are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus, who put no confidence in the flesh. Well, that's not a great t-shirt, right? Like, we are the circumcision, join Chi Alpha or join this church. But he's basically saying that circumcision in the Old Testament Old Covenant was a physical sign, a demarcation for some reason, that these were God's people and that they were set apart. And now Paul is making the argument that we have that same spirit We have that same relationship as being set apart, as being marked for something good by God, not because of something that happens to men in their flesh in this religious community, but instead to all believers, men and women, because of where they place their trust because of where they place their identity. That's why there's a visceral image that maybe you wanted to get out of your mind, where he says, like, we're the circumcision. And he's saying, it's not that there's no more uh, an idea of holiness, or there's not a path to holiness. He's just saying that the path looks different. And he's saying that it has to do with putting our confidence in Jesus, boasting only about Jesus, not relying on our flesh. Well, why does this matter to you. Because as you try to love your parents in what seems like an extended time at home, you cannot do so in your flesh. As you've met and connected with your life group, maybe there's that one person who's, man, talks a lot and takes the attention and they tend to be the hero of their story. Maybe you don't have that person and that's you. That's okay. We love you. We're here for you. But you can't navigate that relationship well in your own strength, in the flesh. Maybe you're struggling with a habit or an addiction that's destructive and you've tried time and again to give it up, to quit cold turkey, to get accountability, to seek therapy. But here's the reality. Those things might be helpful steps on your recovery journey, on the path to freedom, but you cannot do it in the strength of your flesh. Maybe you're trying to figure out what it looks like to live for Jesus when in-person learning returns. How will you stand out? How will you live in? in the world, but not of the world, in your classes, in the dorm and mini-mester, off campus, outside of the gates at Georgetown. Well, the reality is you cannot do it in your own strength by the flesh. Maybe there's a relationship that's been stressful or full of tension. Maybe it has to do with faith and maybe it doesn't. But God is nudging you through the kind of disposition of the Holy Spirit in you to To talk about reconciliation, to navigate truth and repentance and restoration, you cannot do that in and of yourself. And what's interesting is that Paul's also going to make the case in a few verses that it's not just the hard things that we cannot do in our own strength, it's also the big things. The God-sized dreams he's placed in your heart and mind, those cannot be accomplished in your own strength. In fact, my pastor Mark says it like this, that if our dreams could be accomplished in our own strength, then they aren't big enough, and that our God isn't as big as we claim him to be. But I love that Paul isn't giving us a set of hoops to jump through. Instead, he's saying that all of our confidence should be in Jesus. And then he goes on in the next few verses to say something that's pretty interesting. This is like the most humble brag passage of Scripture ever. And I'm not even sure if that's still a term. But he says this. He says, I have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. That was 4b going into 5. He says this, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. As for zeal, I persecuted the church or the way. As for righteousness, based on the law, I'm faultless. So he's saying, I was born on the right side of the tracks. I had the right GPA, the right internships. My family was the right family. My parents were the perfect ideal of what religious parents should look like. I've got it all together. So he's putting up this juxtaposition. He's saying, these dogs, these mutilators of the flesh are causing you to put your confidence in something that isn't Jesus. And then he's coming around the other side saying, well, if we were to do that, let me just tell you about the road I've been on. Let me tell you a little bit about my CV, my LinkedIn, my pedigree. And then he says this in verse 7, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. Jesus is so big to Paul that his own achievements and key markers of his previous identity look small. Jesus is so big. His grace is so amazing and enveloping. His love is so strong and so much in pursuit of Paul that what used to be a big deal, what used to be important is no longer so. And it's not that those accomplishments are devalued in society and culture. No, we know the opposite is true. Those are still valued things, but he's saying, I have a new perspective. I have a new framework. In fact, the way I'm living now, those things I consider a loss for the sake of Christ. And then verse 8: What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. And then he goes on to say, and I'll summarize that he's finding righteousness no longer in his behavior, no longer in his observance of the law, but he's finding his righteousness in Jesus. And, And let me break that down for a second. Righteousness basically means right standing. Because of Jesus, he, Paul, and us have right standing with God. And then out of that right standing flows right actions, right words. And so he's saying, "Man, Jesus has turned it upside down. It's not about purifying yourself and avoiding blemish to have a chance to be in the presence of God like we see in the Old Testament or Old Covenant. But instead, we're relationally restored first. And then from that can flow the reality of a changed life. Now, it doesn't mean that we'll make all of the right decisions immediately after we come to know Jesus, but it does give us a perspective of whose we are, and then from that is where our actions, our behaviors, and our habits flow. And the the crazy thing about God is as we continue to pursue Him, if we continue to confess our sins and seek repentance... That relational standing doesn't change even when we make mistakes. That's why Paul in another letter says, Man, I am the chief of sinners. I am the captain of messing up. And yet that relationship isn't in jeopardy. If you're anything like me, you have those relationships in your life, some of which, no matter what the conflict is, the relationships will remain true and steadfast. And there's those other relationships that, man, if you weather one more storm, if you bring up one piece of feedback or if something goes wrong, even accidentally, you're like, man, I don't know where that relationship would go. It feels like, man, the relationship is always at risk of deterioration based on how you or the other person might act. But that's not the case with God. In fact, in the Psalms, it tells us that God is faithful not only to us, but to his namesake. He's faithful to his commitment to us. And in the Old Testament, names were a prophetic function of identity. And so it's saying that even if God got tired of us, which he won't, and he doesn't, he's going to remain steadfast and true to his identity, which is to be in covenantal, committed relationship. As long as we keep the lines of communication open with God, we're going to be in right standing with him, which... Which leads us to make the observation that confession, that repentance, those things don't just happen one time when you came to know Jesus that first time, but those things should be part of our practices, of our patterns of following Jesus. Whenever I get into a space with friends in a ministry context, or maybe in my small group that I attend uh, at my church over Zoom, and it comes to like, hey, let's talk about confessions or lows of the week or areas where we messed up. I mean, if we're in relationship with one another, everybody should be sharing something because we all make mistakes. It's that moment when we falsely believe that we are beyond reproach. And we stop looking critically at the actions of our lives or we can become uh, in dangerous territory of slipping away, of drifting away from the reality of love in our relationship with God. I'm reading this book for my pastor called Win the Day and he, he talks about Martin Luther the Reformer and how he used to spend six hours in confession at a time. Now I am nowhere near a six hour confession limit, but I also don't think that my life is that much holier than Martin Luther whose whose words and prophetic message kind of shape the Protestant Church even today. Now, it's not about being hard on yourself or about being nitpicky. It's not about condemnation, but conviction from the Holy Spirit helps us to see where we're not living in tune with what God says and who God has made us to be. I bring this up almost every semester when the text talks about sin because I think it's so helpful. C.S. Lewis once said, it's not that our desires in this context for sin are too strong. It's not that our desires are too strong. It's just that we're far too easily pleased. Ignatius, right, for all those Georgetown folks, Ignatius' spirituality would say that sin is a disordered or disproportionate attachment. Paul is helping us to put all of our eggs in the basket of Jesus. He's not saying that we can live full of lawlessness, but he is saying that we're not living according to earning. It's been said before, but I love thinking about it in this way. The Christian life involves a lot of effort, but it doesn't involve any earning, And that's kind of challenging, right? Because many of you earned a place at your university. Many of you earned an incredible scholarship. Many of you have earned internships and jobs that some people could only dream of. And yet, when we come to talk about Jesus, it's no longer about earning, but it is about effort. It is about being intentional in our mind, in our words, in our deeds to make sure that we're cultivating that relationship with Jesus. It brings us right back to verse 1, the idea of rejoicing, about remembering, rehearsing, putting ourselves through the paces of joy. And that's what allows Paul to say what's really radical at the end of these focus verses. He's basically telling us that it is worthy that being with Jesus It's the surpassing worth of knowing him. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus is worth to Paul considering everything else as less important, as non-essential. What's really interesting here, when I think is a rare form of leadership in Paul, is that he's not saying, hey, there's this group of evildoers, mutilators of the flesh that are trying to get you to do something. Don't do that but do my thing. No, he's saying, don't do that thing, but also you don't need to have my story in order to be close to Jesus. I mean, that's the example of a humble servant. He's not just saying, hey, those are heretics and and folks that are broken out there. He's saying that even if you lived perfectly and had the pedigree I had, it wouldn't be enough it wouldn't be uh, meant as valuable as knowing that your faith can be in Jesus and that Jesus establishes our righteousness. So many of us get stru- stuck in a struggle, in a cycle of sin and shame because we are in a position or posture of earning and we feel, man, we keep messing up. We can't keep confessing or asking for forgiveness. What will my life group leader say? What will my friends say or my pastor? What does God think of all these mistakes that so we have to remember? The equation begins with our belief in Jesus, and that's where righteousness is a part of our identity. As you and I make difficult decisions to flee temptation, to pursue the best things in life, to prioritize abiding, to pray and give extravagantly towards missions, we're not doing those things in order to earn righteousness. No, we already start in a place of righteousness because of our belief in Jesus and because of what Jesus did conquering sin and death. And then from there, what flows out is right action. And it seems like it could be semantics, but if you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. Because when I'm stuck in a cycle of sin and shame, it feels so unnatural, and yet it's theologically correct to realize that, man, I am God's. I'm His beloved. I'm a part of of his family, nothing that I say or do would change the way that God loves me. And to be honest, as a performal performer, people pleaser, perfectionist, who's drawn to legalism at times, I'm kind of like, wait, are you telling me that... If I cut out every sin, big and small, you don't love me anymore. That doesn't really seem fair. Like, I want to earn it. But Jesus continually reminds the disciples. Paul continuously reminds the early Jesus communities, the early churches. And we're here as your campus staff to remind you it's never been about earning. Scripture tells us that we couldn't have earned it. Romans tells us, it's a letter that Paul wrote to the church at Rome, that that the, the result, the payoff for sin is death. And we act outside of God's will. We don't break God's laws. Our lives are broken against them, as the reformer once said. What we discover here is that it's belief in Jesus that activates our new identity. And Paul does a great job of wholesale saying everything else Everything that was an accomplishment, some things that he chose, right, like that he was a zealot, that he pursued being a Pharisee, other things that were his circumstances, maybe some would say destiny, where he was born, who he was born to. He's saying, I count it all as garbage. I count it all. Some translations say dung. I count it all. I count it all as as terrible in comparison to how great it is to know Jesus, Whenever I read these words of Paul, it makes me question some things about my own life. Am I living so joyously for Jesus that I would discard those accolades and accomplishments because of the surpassing worth of knowing him? Do I view Jesus and my relationship with him as an obligation or as an opportunity to experience life the way it was designed to be? Do I see God the Father as someone full of rules and rigidity or as someone beckoning me to come home to experience to experience others and to experience him the way that he designed me to the way that he designed you to I think sometimes what I'm missing, and when I don't acknowledge the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus, it's either because I haven't rejoiced in Jesus and placed that safeguard from verse 1 in my life, or I haven't let go of the weight in my identity of the achievements and accomplishments. Now, now Paul isn't saying, now go be a hobo, don't accomplish anything. But he's saying this, that man, the height, the pinnacle of our experience should be the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. Whether you're a doctor or a politician, whether you're a campus missionary staff or a church pastor, whether you're a barista or a dad, whether you're a son or a daughter, whatever your identity is, calling, family, vocation, Paul is going out on a limb here and is saying all of it should be subservient to what it's like to know Jesus. And then he doesn't ask us to become monks or to live in a monastery or to live a life of asceticism. No, he asks us to then from that posture go on doing everything no longer with the same motivations, but with a renewed perspective on the joy of the Lord. That's why in Colossians 3, it says that we should do all things as working for the Lord, not for others. So it's a life of doing but not where doing equals your identity. It's a life of action, but not one where busyness reigns. It's a life of pursuing change in our own hearts and in the communities around us, not so that we'll finally be worthy, but because we've been operating from the perspective that we are God's and knowing Him is worth it all as we prepare to worship. I want you to think about this as we sing songs or maybe as you journal or or connect with someone in the chat box for prayer, is that there should be a joy in knowing the Lord. Maybe ask yourself and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you, what are those things that are keeping you from taking joy in your faith? And then once you're grounded in the reality of whose you are in God, that's when you can begin to ask the adventurous question, God, who do you want me to serve? Where do you want me to go? Recognizing that it's never been about earning, but that our effort continues to cultivate this incredible love relationship between God and His people.